Join me, if you would, in your Bibles in the book of John, John chapter number four. It's good to see you all this morning, good to be in the Lord's house and be able to worship the Lord. I uh, just second the things that Jared said in regards to just encouraging you as the uh, church starts to reopen, if you will, not in the sense of meeting, but in the sense of activity. And uh, lots of things that probably filled your schedule in the last months or, or last year that um, now you might have to clear them off so that you can get back involved, but we really want you to be here. And our goal uh, as a church is to become a, um, a community of people who do life together. And the way that we're going to accomplish that is through some of these different fellowships and um, just bringing you guys together so that you can get to know each other and, um, and then you can do life together. And that's really, I think, what the church is about anyway. Um, so, uh, so make yourself available in, in those areas and um, encourage the teenagers by supporting their ministry that they're going to be doing for, for youth camp and, and utilize them as well. Like, as Jared said, you know, the, it's the dirty jobs that you want, you know, like the crawl space jobs and stuff like that. Those are the ones that you want the teenagers to come over for. They, they love those jobs. <laughs> right, teenagers? And they love those jobs. So, so take advantage of those opportunities to encourage your young people in the Lord. I, I've often said this. I was a youth pastor for five years before becoming a, a, a teaching pastor, and I, I often said the world, the, world, the world has a thousand things for teenagers to do, and the, they, they, they get their satisfaction from what the world offers, but the church needs to have some things for their kids to do and that their kids can f- be fulfilled and satisfied following Jesus, and uh, that's that comes back down to us as the body of Christ, making sure that that's happening. And so this is, camp is one way to do that. And then also putting them to work um, around your house. And, and it's just, a, you'd be surprised at how far it would go. Uh, I'm, I'm amazed, even when I was a youth pastor, I was amazed at how kids responded to people bringing them into their home. And then Ron, been a youth pastor before, he knows what this is about too. And kids just respond to those things. You care for them, and they respond to it. So these are ways to do that. So I just want to um, reiterate what Jared has already said, just to say, um, please, please join us in this um, journey of faith. Uh, John chapter number four, we're going to remain in our series, I Don't Think It Means What You Think It Means. And this morning, we're going to talk about worship. And um, from a, in John chapter number four, Jesus gives a description to the woman at the well of what worship is, what worship looks like. And I just want to unfold that this morning. In the next few weeks, we'll deal, we'll continue, actually the next two weeks, we'll finish up this series, and then um, our family will be going on a couple-week vacation, then we'll be back and we'll uh, dive into a book of the Bible So and do just some more verse-by-verse study. So just encourage you to be in prayer for us and, and um, where we're going to go next. Worship is one of the most confusing, uh, debated, and divisive activities of the church life today. And when you look at the church as a whole, 
not just our, a, a local church, but, but as a whole, you have um, many different uh, divisions or discussions in regards to this idea of worship. What, it, what is worship? What does it look like? People go to church because they say, well, the worship program is better here than it is over here, and they like the, maybe the worship music better. And, and it causes, uh, it, it has unfortunately caused a great deal of, of division and, and frustration within the church. For many people in the 21st century, worship has become another part of a very compartmentalized life. In other words, it's, it's a piece of our life. We worship on, on, on Sunday or we worship in certain events, but it, it becomes a, a part of, of our life and, and not the whole of our life. In many ways, worshiping people might say, uh, how do you worship or when do you worship? And the response might be, when I go to church on Sunday, I worship. Um, we worship the Lord together corporately this morning in singing. Um, we praise the Lord this morning in singing. Maybe, maybe even more than worship, the music of the culture today in the church is maybe more of emphasizing the praise of God and not the worship of God. We understand what worship means. We will probably find out that the music that we sing is more praise than it is worship. And there's nothing wrong with that. We, we like to praise the Lord too, amen? And, and yet we want to make sure, though, that we define it correctly because if we call something that is praise worship, then we have to then redefine what is worship. And we want to know what worship is so that we can make sure that we are worshiping the Lord and praising the Lord. So some people might say, well, I worship the Lord when I go to church on Sunday. Some people might say, I worship when I give in the offering, when I give to charity, when I help somebody in need. Um, the music program at our church or maybe a music concert that you go to. Maybe you've said before, man, I went to hear um, such and such a group and it was a very worshipful experience. Right? Maybe you've said that before. And really, if you think about it, music has been, music in the 21st century in the church has been, um, has almost displaced the idea of worship. It, it's become a substitute. When people think of worship, I mean, be honest with me this morning, let's just talk practically. When we think of worship, music usually has some connection to it, doesn't it? Maybe a really strong connection. Maybe it's the overwhelming definition when we think of worship, we think of music. Well, our, our, our music program here at the church is called our what? It's called our worship program, right? And, and in many churches, you look at their websites, you see a worship pastor, and the worship pastor is ultimately the, it's the music pastor. And so that, that the music has been, has been strongly um, put into that place of being kind of the emphasis of worship. Again, it's a compartmentalized, uh, a compartmentalization of life. Because how many of us listen to music all the time? I mean, every moment of our day. We don't, do we? So we've compartmentalized worship maybe into music, maybe into some other aspect. Maybe you um, enjoy uh, worship in other ways, but, but we've compartmentalized worship into areas of life or times of life. And the Lord is going to describe for the woman at the well, what real worship looks like. Matter of fact, let me say this. The compartmentalization of worship is really the antithesis of worship. Worship within its definition does not allow for compartmentalizing. 
It, cannot, it can never be put aside for something else to take its place or it's not worship. It's like saying something is the first place in your life and it's first place as long as it's not second place, right? Once it becomes second place, it's no longer, it's no longer first place, is it? And worship demands as it, at, at its core that it's all the time and that it's, it's God first, it's God central. Worship demands that, and so once we're not worshiping, quote unquote, if we compartmentalizing it, then it's not really truly worship. Others view worship as communion, uh, baptism, or some other ceremony that we do within the church, within the church um, structure, within the church liturgy that we do each week, and they say, well, that's, that's my worship. And so we kind of see this stuff taking place in our, in our world today. At the heart of worship for so many is religious ceremony. And that religious ceremony is something that makes people feel good about themselves. It makes them feel good about the, the moment. It's kind of like a, a season in which they are settling some things down internally and um, making peace with themselves. So they maybe come to church on Sunday. It's like, man, I need to come to church on Sunday because I need this worship is, needs to become a part of my compartmentalized life. Unfortunately, this is not what worship really means. Sinclair Ferguson says it this way, and I think this is a good quote, it's helpful. It says, there's a difference between going to a service for the worship and going to a service to worship the Lord. The distinction appears to be a minor one, but it may, but it may, may imply the difference between the worship of God and the worship of music. It is difficult in the 21st century to distinguish between worshiping God and or worshiping self. In other words, there are things that we do that are ultimately the worship of self and not the worship of God that we call worship. Um, Spiritual, emotional experiences that we have, we might call them worship, but they're not really truly the worship of God. It's just a, a moment that we're having. It's a spiritual experience. It's a, something that is, is, is driven in our flesh, not in the spirit. And, and it's not truly worshiping God, but we don't really know how to distinguish what is worshiping God or not worshiping God. It's interesting today that they'll have, you'll have a concert um, where they'll, they'll talk about how great the worship is and, and how everybody in the concert is worshiping God. And at the end of the concert, three quarters of the people will quote unquote get saved. Well, there's a problem with that because it's difficult to worship God if you're not a believer in God. But yet this is an emotional experience. It's a ceremony. It's something that's happening that's driving your flesh. It makes you feel good on the inside. It's kind of warm and fuzzy. And so we call it worship. And in many ways, in some ways, it is worship. It's not the worship of God. It's the worship of, it's the worship of us. And we, we want to avoid, obviously, we want to avoid the worship of us, and we want to worship God. This morning, we would all agree here that God, is, God alone is worthy of our worship. He alone is worthy of praise. And when we put ourselves in, in his way, when we put ourselves in his place, when we become the object of worship or we become, quote unquote, we become God or we become little gods, then we've displaced him and put ourselves in his place and then we, we worship ourselves, which is not true worship at all. 
So Jesus is going to define in John 4 what is, what is worship to this woman who, he's, who he has gone to and he has, um, she's going to get saved. This woman, is, we, we, you guys know the story in John 4. She's a woman at, uh, that comes to the well in the heat of the day, which is completely out of, out of sorts um, for this situation. She has five husbands, and she's living with her sixth man. So she's, she's pretty much an, in, a very immoral woman, which implies that God is, God is interested in sinful people. Amen? It's good to know, isn't it? When we see a story like this, it should tell us that God is interested in people that are broken. Matter of fact, I will tell you this. Jesus says in the Bible that God did not come for healthy people, but he came for unhealthy people. God did not come for righteous people, but he came for unrighteous people, right? So we, we can all be glad this morning. If you see yourself this morning as being a sinful person, you see yourself as being broken, and, and perhaps you see yourself as being somewhat hopeless, let me assure you of something. God is interested in you. You're, you're, you're a, you're a, you've got his attention. When you notice and recognize your frailties, that's a great place to be because God is going to be able to use you. And so this woman at the well, Jesus goes to the well, he talks to this woman, he, he talks to her about her situation, he shares the gospel with her, she receives the gospel. And the gospel is simple, that Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scripture. And that's the gospel. The gospel is, is that Jesus Christ can take that which is broken and make it whole again on the basis of, of his sacrifice for our sins. The gospel isn't that he can take that which is fixed and make it better. It is that he takes what's broken and he fixes it and he repairs it. And I'm thankful for that gospel. The end of this gospel message or the end of this woman is she asks the question about worship. A natural result, listen, a natural result of embracing what Jesus Christ has done for you is that you have a desire to worship him. You have a desire to praise him. You have a, a, a desire to, um, to, for him to become all of life. And so the woman here, she asked the question about, about worship. I want to worship the Lord whom I've who I am receiving, who I'm believing in. I want to worship him, and the Lord is going to explain it to her. So join me in your Bibles, if you would, in, in uh, John 4, and we're going to just read uh, a portion of this narrative or story, beginning in verse number 16. Jesus says to her, go, after telling her that he is the water of life, if she drinks from his well, she'll never thirst again, um, he says to her, go and call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one that you now have is not your husband. What a, what a, what a humiliating situation, right? What a humbling moment for this woman. She's just been exposed the deepest, darkest secrets of her heart. The deepest, darkest, darkest secrets of her life have just been, been expounded, uh, exposed, told to her. And then a lot of us would run as fast and as far as we could in this moment, right? 
this is a scary moment for people to be in. This is, the, this is the moment of conversion when the Lord says to us, this is who you are. And he exposes our sinfulness to us. And we either, we either embrace it and, and repent and believe what Jesus has done because of the fact that we're sinful or we run and we hide and the Garden of Eden is a good example of that. Adam and Eve, when they, were, when they had their sins exposed to them, you know what they did? They blamed somebody else, they hid, and they tried to cover their own sins with, with un, insufficient righteousness. Are those the right ways to respond when God exposes our sins? Not, is it? The right way to respond is through humility, brokenness, repentance, and faith in Christ. Maybe the Lord has exposed you. Maybe the Lord has said to you, you're sinful. And even, even maybe even gotten down to specific levels. Maybe you're full of pride. Or maybe you have a, a, a wondering eye. You're lustful. Or maybe you have anger issues. Or maybe you have bitterness issues. Maybe you have all of these other issues. And maybe the Lord is exposing that to you in your heart. And your natural human response is going to be to cover that up. And to hide from that and to blame, well, it was my parents' fault. It was, you know, I got raised up this way. Listen, it doesn't matter. What matters is the fact that we're sinners and we need Jesus. We need a Savior. And when our sins are exposed to us like this woman's sins are exposed to her, he wasn't telling her anything that she didn't already know. And he wasn't telling her that you're worse than everybody else in the world. Everybody has that area of their life that needs to be exposed. He says, what what you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, Powerful three words. Woman, believe me. Remember when he tells Mary and Martha in John 11, he says, if you believe me, Jesus is telling them that Lazarus is gonna raise from the dead, amen? And Jesus, and, and he tells Mary and Martha, he says, if you believe, you will see the glory of God. Jared read this morning that when Jesus Christ went to his own people, that they did not believe him. They doubted him. The Bible says they were, he was not able to perform many miracles amongst them because they would not believe him. Instead, he just went around teaching. I think we live in a world today where we're full of teaching, but we have not, we're not seeing the miracles of God because we don't have faith to embrace the teaching that we're receiving. Not just any faith, but faith that embraces it enough to act upon it. It's not until we step out of the boat that we're going to be able to walk on the water, folks. That doesn't happen until you get out of the boat. It doesn't happen, Moses, the Red Sea doesn't split until Moses puts his foot in it. These things happen when we believe God. He says to her, woman, believe me. He goes on to say, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. 
But the hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Just If you underline the word must worship here, the implication is, is that it is a necessity. It's not an option. It's not saying, well, some of you can worship him in spirit and some of you can worship him in truth. This statement is, it is, it is true worship is only worship that is in spirit and in truth. True worship is both. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And we'll look at the remainder in a few minutes and, and just make some comments about the remainder in closing. But I want to I share with you just three thoughts this morning from the scriptures. First of all, I want to, to share with you about historical worship. Well, how do we get to this place where the Lord is literally giving this woman an explanation of a transition this is a transitional phase where we're moving from Old Testament forms of worship to New Testament forms of worship. We're moving out of this ceremonialism, external worship, to a, to a true heart worship, a worship that comes from the inside. So let me give you a few things in regards to historical worship to write down and to consider. Number one is we're all, we were all created in Adam and Eve to worship. A part of our creation, a purpose behind our being created was that we would be able to worship God. God created Adam, God created Eve for the purpose of worship. Isaiah 43 and verse 7, the Bible says, Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. And then verse 21 says, The people whom I formed for myself, so that they might declare my praise. Mankind was created to worship God. The Garden of Eden is a perfect picture of what that worship looks like. In the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 10, 31, the Bible says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. We were created for worship. We were created to worship not ourselves. We were created to worship God. If you think about the fall, the fall was Eve taking a moment to, to emphasize self over God. That was the, the fall from worship. The fall from worshiping God to worshiping self. So we were created to worship, number one. Number two, what worship looked like in creation. Adam and Eve and the Garden of Eden reveal to us the most pure form of worship. The, most, the purest form of worship is found in the Garden of Eden. You read Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 prior to the fall. What you find is you find the purest and the most, the, the most, uh, most perfect, if you will, form of worship. A few things to think about. Number one is in the Garden, there were no ceremonies. There were no ceremonies in the Garden of Eden, yet you have the purest and the most perfect form of worship. In the Garden of Eden, you will also notice that God is central. In Genesis 1 and 2, you find that God is the absolute focus of the text of Scripture. And it's not until the fall in chapter number 3 where Eve becomes the focus of the, of the narrative or of the Scriptures. 
So you, you see, first of all, there's no ceremonies in perfect worship. You see, secondly, that God is central or God is everything in what we would call pure worship, spiritual worship. God is central in worship. God is the focus in worship. In the Garden of Eden, they had fellowship with God. They obeyed God's commandments. They served God. They revered God or um, or feared him would be another word for it, and not a, a fear in an unhealthy way because nothing was unhealthy in the garden. Everything was perfect and right. So they didn't fear him in an unhealthy way, but they feared God in a healthy way. Fearing God, the Bible says in Proverbs, is the beginning of wisdom. It's not a negative thing. It's a positive thing. I use the word reverence here for, uh, to give us a, a, maybe a better understanding or a deeper understanding of this is not a fear that is unhealthy, but it's a, a reverence that is very, very healthy and appropriate. It's the right kind of fear. They prioritized God in the garden, which is a huge way of worshiping God. Every day that they walked by that tree that was in the center of the garden and they chose not to eat from it, even though it was pleasant to the eye and all of those things, they were prioritizing God over something that would maybe be satisfying to their flesh. God puts this tree in the center of the garden in such a way, I mean, he could have put it off in the corner, right? He could have put it in a closet somewhere. He puts it in the center of the garden because every, every time Adam and Eve chose to follow God and not to follow the temptation of that tree, they were worshiping God. They prioritized him. And man, I tell you something, folks, this can be a real, this can be a, a, a real task to us. Because we're tempted every day and every week and every moment of our lives to choose between prioritizing God over self. And I, I will submit to you that it's challenging and difficult to not choose self 50 to, to 100% of the time. Which is a distortion of worship because now we're worshiping self and not God. I can tell you from, from example, there are many times in my life where I will, well, I, will, I will quit on certain things that are fleshly, like I'm giving this up, right? Anybody ever give stuff up? Right? You give, I'm giving this up so that I can do this for the Lord. And, and man, before you know it, the devil has filled that, what you've given up on, he's filled it with some other stuff, Right? The devil's going to keep filling your world with things because he wants you to prioritize yourself over God. That's exactly what he does in the garden with Eve. He says, Eve, think about your needs. Think about your desires. Think about yourself. And that cast the whole world into condemnation because Eve was no longer focused on worshiping God, but now she was focused on worshiping Eve. Fellowship with God, prioritized God, obeyed God, served God, feared God, and loved God. None of this stuff was in, inordinate or inappropriate. This was a, you talk about a perfect relationship, this was it. And when does worship get distorted? Well, it gets distorted when Satan causes Eve to notice herself. And then we have worship after the fall. This is worship in the garden. Now what happens? Worship after the fall. Worship after the fall is entirely ceremonial. It's, it's one ceremony after another ceremony. That is how they worshiped. They worshiped in ceremonies. 
They had events, they had sacrifices, they had systems that pressed them into worship. The reason why they had systems that pressed them into worship is because after the fall, remember what the Lord says to Adam and Eve, when you sin, you will surely what? You will surely die. What dies about them when they sinned? They died spiritually, didn't they? The reason why the ceremonies are introduced after the fall is because mankind no longer had anything on the inside that pressed them to worship God. Everything that pressed them to worship God after the fall was external. It was on the outside. And for thousands of years, mankind sought to worship God through external ceremonies and sacrifices. And it presses us to the New Testament, and it presses us to understand that now we're living in a generation, we're living in a time where we no longer have to embrace the ceremonialism of worship because we have been restored to the state where it is now the light has been turned back on into our hearts spiritually. So worship after the fall was purely ceremonial. It was external and physical. It was expressed by, by bodily uh, activity. Matter of fact, the word in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word means it's interchangeable with the idea of being prostrate. If you think about being prostrate, it means to be, you, you see um, when people pray sometimes, they will just kind of fall forward. That's the idea of being prostrate before the Lord. It's to, it's to, it's to be in a moment where you have fallen forward and you're worshiping the Lord uh, as an expression of submission and, and all of the other things that are healthy in worship. The spiritual side of mankind has been darkened and therefore all of the worship has to be ceremonial. So this is where, listen, this is where we are, this is where this story comes into play. What the Lord is doing is, is he's transitioning from that season of ceremonialism into a new season of spirit-filled worship, of heart worship, of real worship, of Eden-like worship, where it's not just flowing from ceremonies, but now we're worshiping the Lord from the heart again. We have been, we have been restored into the image of God through Christ. We have been restored into his image through Christ living within us. Now we can worship him, him again in a pure way. But here's the danger, folks, and here's the challenge. Our temptation is, is to hold on, and the Jews, the Jews were great examples of this. Our temptation is to hold on to the ceremonialism of worship and neglect the spiritual side of worship. We've been restored, and therefore we can worship God fully. Point number two, first of all, the historical view of worship. Number two is the holistic, holistic view of worship. The holistic view of worship. Jesus describes in John 4 the restoration of holistic worship. Again, worship like the Garden of Eden. There are a few thoughts I want to give you in regards to this, and, and, and just think about them as we I share them with you and compare them into the text here. Number one is preparation for worship. This is very, very important because this is unique because we, we do have sin in the picture now, right? In the garden, there was no sin in the picture at all. They worshiped purely from the heart and there was no sin there. There was no self in the garden, okay? No self in the garden. Only God was superior and supreme. Now, in the New Testament, we've been restored to the image of God by his spirit coming to live within us. We can now worship him purely. But what is 
What is conflicting? What is the wrestling match for that worship to take place? There is sin, right? There is sin in every individual's life. Everybody, everybody that's in here has sin in your flesh. You have sinned in your flesh. And that is something that has to be dealt with before true worship can ever be accomplished. Restored worship is only when God is everything again. And God cannot be everything again if you are in the way of God being everything. We go back to the Eve. That's why, listen, honestly, folks, that is why ceremonialism still plays a huge role in our worship because we haven't ridden ourselves of self. We haven't gotten rid of self, so we can't really have a holistic worship. So what we do is we have a ceremonial version of worship. And then we feel good about ourselves and we go on our way. You know what's interesting? In the Old Testament, the ceremonial version of worship lasted how long? They did it every day. They did something every day. Why? Because inside there was this deep-rooted knowledge of their failure and their inability to really truly worship God and be in a right place with God. So they had to constantly be making sacrifices and they had to be constantly going through these ceremonies because they were not right on the inside. And the same thing goes for us. We, we are the same way in the 21st century. We go throughout the week and we're miserable. And it's like, man, I can't wait to get to church on Sunday. And that's great. But you're compartmentalizing worship. You're turning it into a ceremony that takes place on Sunday that only satisfies you until you find yourself in sin again. And you're like, oh, I failed again. I'm miserable again. Not basing your worship on the Son of God, on Jesus Christ, his sacrifice, his forgiveness, his, his justification and, and, and setting you free. The Bible says in Colossians 1 and verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church, speaking of Christ. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. That is what has to happen before we can truly worship God in a holistic way, is that God, Jesus, must take preeminent role in our life again. It cannot take place until God is preeminent. So what has to happen for God to be preeminent? Number one, man must no longer be preeminent. <laughs> it's pretty simple, right? That makes a lot of sense. If God has to be preeminent for me to truly worship him, then I cannot be preeminent. So here's what Jesus does. Hey, woman, you've been married five times, and the sixth guy you're living with now, guess who's not preeminent now? Who's not preeminent now? She's not preeminent now. She has just been humbled beyond what a lot of us could handle. Nicodemus is another great story of this in John chapter number 3. Nicodemus was a ruler of the Jews. He should have been known for his intellectual understanding of the, of, of, of the religious system. And Jesus says to him, hey, if you want to be a part of the kingdom, you must be born again. You know, you know what Nicodemus felt like? like about, he even goes to like this childlike statement, like, uh, you know, like the most intellectual guy in the world, making like, uh, do I have to climb back in my mother's womb again? Uh, I mean, Jesus was gracious to him and didn't like make fun of his ignorance. 
That's it. What was Jesus doing is he was humbling him. He was humbling the woman at the well. He was getting them out of the way so that they would recognize that it's worship. Listen, worship is not about us. When we are central, when we are the focus of any situation or any circumstances, it is impossible to worship God because we are worshiping us. That is exactly what happens in the garden with Eve. She worships herself, and therefore she can no longer worship God. What you will notice in the garden is there's no like dual worship going on. Don't worry, Lord, I still worship you too. That's not taking place because that's not a possibility. There is no it is an impossibility to have two number ones in your life. So what does he do? He has to remove her from herself. He has to remove her, her pride, her self-righteousness, perhaps anything that she would think would make her worthy of being acceptable to God. He had to break that down immediately before he could teach her on worship. This idea of worship being come just as you are is not biblical. You don't come just as you are in worship. You better come in worship broken and humbled before God, repentant and needy, empty but full of faith. These are the only ways that we can come before God and find acceptable worship. We must remember in Isaiah 42 and verse 8, God says, he will not share his glory with anyone. We must get to the place where we realize how impossible things are and then we will see God step in and do the impossible. Matthew 19, 26, Jesus said unto them, speaking about salvation, he says to them, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Now, when, you, when you get to a place in your life, folks, where you realize how desperate you are, when you get to a place in your life where you realize how broken you are, when you get to a place in your life where you realize how insignificant you are, when you get to a place in your life when you realize how incapable you are, you say, Pastor John, you don't sound very politically correct. I'm not trying to be politically correct. I'm trying to be biblically correct. There'll be a lot of self-righteous people that will stand before God one day. And, and Matthew 7 says that. They will say to me, Lord, we've done this in your name and this in your name. And he says to them, I never knew you. Depart from me into everlasting fire. I'm not here to build you up in your self-esteem. I'm here to tell you what God's word says. And God's word says that he receives the broken and the contrite. Isaiah says that those who are broken and contrite and tremble at his word are the ones that catch his attention. This is what God says, and he has to, listen, he has to break us down till we see that, till we will, we will truly worship him and embrace him. So that's preparation for worship. The Bible says that God exalts the humble, but he does what with the exalted? He humbles the exalted. God gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. Listen, it's all throughout Scripture. You don't have to come to the, to the worship table perfect, but you better come broken. 
There's no meal taking place between the proud and God in fellowship. There's a lot of meals taking place between sinners and God in fellowship. But there's never a meal taking place between proudful people and God in fellowship. It's always sinful, broken people that God is fellowshipping with. Man, he is, listen to me, folks. He is the enemy of the proud and unbroken. He is the friend of the humble and sinful. Prepared for worship. Maybe God is breaking you down and you hate it. It's like, man, I don't see any purpose in this. Man, I just hope that I encourage you this morning that there is a purpose in it. Maybe God is bringing you to a place where you can worship. Maybe he's bringing you to a place where you can be saved. Prepared for worship. Number two, he tells us about the people of worship. Notice this. In this passage of Scripture, he, he, you, you, if you read the whole uh, chapter of John 4, John 4, you will find this idea of, of men, men, men worshipped, men worshipped, men worshipped. Because under the ceremonial system, men worshipped. Under the ceremonial system, men worshipped. But here's what he's dealing with here. He's dealing with a woman. And he even makes it clear over and over again, he uses the term woman, woman, woman. Why? Because everybody can worship. This is an opening of the idea that worship is not about a certain group of people, a certain race of people, a certain ethnicity of people, a certain language of people, a certain sex of people. This is an invitation that all can worship God. In the Garden of Eden, it wasn't Adam worshiping God, it was Adam and Eve worshiping God together. Matter of fact, one of the greatest ways that we worship God is through families worshiping him together. That's the best way to worship God because that's how he created it to be. Sometimes just living in what God created and the way he created it is a means of worshiping him. Holistic worship is when God is worshiped by everyone. And it will, listen, it, it, it will be, in the end, it will be that way. Everyone will worship God. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And you know something? That's holistic worship. Worship when every man sees God as superior. Places of worship. She says, I know that um, we worship God in the mount and you worship him in Jerusalem because the Jews saw worship being taken place in Jerusalem. The Samaritans saw it being taken place in Mount Gerizim. But basically what they're saying is, is that there's a place of worship. You have to worship in church. You have to worship at conferences. or You have to go to a concert to get a good worship on. You have to go to a fellowship to get a, a really good worship on. And we have, we, have, we have put worship into these places that where it can be compartmentalized. If I'm not there, I'm not really worshiping. No, that's not true. What does Jesus say? He says, you used to worship in Jerusalem and you used to worship in Mount Gerizim, but now you will worship everywhere. In the Garden of Eden, there was no compartmentalizing of, well, this over here is the area that we worship God, but over here we don't worship God. It was the whole garden worshiping God. Wherever they were, wherever they walked, they worshiped God. It was their life to worship God. There wasn't any aspect of their life that wasn't in. They didn't have this 
this room over here in their mind that they're like, oh, that's not a room that you can get in, God. It was all about worshiping God. Listen to me, folks. True worship cannot be compartmentalized. It cannot be a part of where you live. It has to be all of where you live. Worship is not at church on Sunday. Yes, we come together because we are worshipers, but we don't come together to worship any differently than we're worshiping all the time. It's not worship when we ceremonialize it and don't make it the whole of life. The places of worship. We in the 21st century, churches, fellowships, whatever. He says to her, it's not in Jerusalem and it's not in Mount Gerizim. It's not in the church. It's not in conferences. It's not in concerts. God is worshiped everywhere in life. Why? Because he's inside of those who believe. Places of worship. Number three, in this this point, practices of worship. Some worship him. He says, you worship him in spirit. Or you worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. Here's what he's simply saying. You worship, Jews worship intellectually. It was based upon knowledge. Samaritans worshiped emotionally. It was based upon emotions. They didn't, matter of fact, in, in, in Athens, in Acts chapter number 17, it talks about worshiping the unknown God. They didn't have the knowledge or the intellect that the Jews had in regards to who they were worshiping. They just were worshiping God. And the Jews had this intellect where they were worshiping God out of of what they know. And here's what the Lord says to her. You will will no longer worship in intellect only. You will no longer worship in, in emotions only. You will worship in both. And he says this is the way worship must be. Not can be, but must be. Holistic holistic worship is a combination of of spirit and truth. It is a a giving of yourself emotionally based upon the truths that God has revealed to you. In other words, so we have that it's every place already. Worship is everywhere you go. It's not compartmentalized to a place. We have every people. It's not compartmentalized to a certain group of people. Now we have every aspect of life. All of you is worship. It's not just your, oh, Lord, I give you my emotions. You know, I'll go. It's not just your emotions, nor is it just your intellect. We have a lot of people today that are intellectually worshiping God, but they refuse to let their emotions have any place. We have a lot of churches that are emotionally working, work, worshiping God, but they have, they have no room for the intellect. Listen, what Jesus says is this, is let's bring them together because now you are full of me and the reason why you are full of me is because of the truth that has been presented to you. Number four or five periods of worship. Watch what he says here. It's interesting. He she, she goes on, she says, I know that when the Lord comes, so now we're dealing with time, right? When do we worship the Lord? And here's what Jesus says to her. She says, well, when the Lord comes, then I will worship is ultimately what she's saying. And she gets it right, right? We can't worship without the Lord being present. Can we worship without the Lord being present? If he's the center, can we worship without him being present? No, here's the thing. And here's what Jesus says to her. I'm right here in front of you. Is there any time that we don't worship the Lord? 
Is there any time for a believer that God is not with us? When he says to her, I am right here, what he is saying to her is worship me now. And anytime you're in the presence of God, which is, do we come in the presence of God on Sunday and not live in the presence of God Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday? Do we? No, we don't. Listen, we don't come to church because we need to fill something that's not there. We come to church because something has been filled. We come to church because we're excited about being around other believers, not because we're trying to fill a void in our life that hasn't already been filled by the Spirit of God. I will submit to you that that's the problem with the church today, is people come to fill something up that's empty, and what they find is over time that they fill it up with something else, and the church is out the door. If you will come to church because God lives inside of you, and you are super excited about being around other believers, you won't skip on Sundays unless you need to, seriously need to. It's about a passion inside of you, a burning that, needs to, that doesn't need to be filled, but it, 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 it needs, it, it's encouraged and motivated by other people. That's, what, that's why we do what we do. Folks, if we do religious ceremonies like they did in the Old Testament, we're not worshiping the way that God designed for us to worship in the New Testament, which is all of us and everything about us. When do we worship? Is it Saturdays for the Jewish in the Old Testament or Sundays in the New Testament? The woman understood that worship only takes place when the Messiah is come and Jesus says to her, I am here. Holistic worship. Worship happens whenever we're in the presence of Christ and we are always in the presence of Christ. Therefore, worship is always thing. See, worship is about God having the whole you. That's what worship is about. It's, it's that he has everything of you. Like in the garden, you, he is central to your life. I think sometimes we make worship into something that we have to manipulate. Man, I got to make this happen. I want to worship the Lord now. And it's like, no. It is who you are. Worship is a lifestyle. It's what God has done in your heart, and you walk around and do it. Holistic worship is a lifestyle. It's all of you, everywhere, and all the time. And lastly, this morning, healthy worship. I want you to think about this with me this morning. I'm not going to read the rest, but you'll see. You can see it. Unhealthy worship, remember this. Unhealthy worship for the disciples. Jesus' very followers show us something about an unhealthy form of worship. They come back and they say, number one, why are you talking to a woman? Man, what a horrible perspective, right? Right? He's just shared the gospel with a woman. She's just been converted. And their comment is, why are you talking to a woman? Then the next comment is, Jesus, aren't you hungry? And then they just missed it, didn't they? True worship is spiritual. And it's based upon truth. But listen to me, it's never fleshly. It's never fleshly. It's never carnal. Holistic worship, on the other hand, the woman 
The woman, the woman forgets all the rules and regulations, right? The woman forgets all of the traditions. The woman forgets the fact that she's been married to five guys and she's the most looked down at person in the community. And what does she do? She goes and wins the town for Jesus. You know what she didn't say? Well, let's see here. The fifth commandment says, thou shalt go win your town to Jesus. And so for me to worship, I'm going to obey the fifth commandment. She doesn't say that, does he? That this woman was overwhelmed by the grace of Christ that she couldn't but go and tell people about what had happened to her. You know what that is, my friends? That is worship. That is worship. We are filled with him and we want other people to know about him. And nothing else matters. We as a church need a taste of this worship. Each one of us needs to re-examine what is our what is our worship like? Is it ceremonial? Is it about the church or conferences or concerts? Or is our worship truly about Jesus? Is it the exaltation of Christ in our life? And if it is, and his presence is the only thing necessary for worship, then all avenues of life, all times of life, and all places of life ought to be places of worship. Like in the garden, worship looks like fellowship with God, obedience to God, serving God, loving God, prioritizing God, and revering God, and it all coming from the heart. Revelation 5, verse 11 and 12, I close with this. Then I look, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders of the voice of many angels numbered myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Let us worship the Lord holistically. Father, we thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for caring enough about this destitute woman to see her, know the gospel, save her, and then to teach her about what it looks like to worship. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's discouraging to look at the disciples' response who had walked with Jesus for some time now and not have gotten it, but yet this woman who was destitute and desperate gets it. Help us not to be so full of ourselves, Lord, that we don't get it. Help us to be humble and broken before you, to restore you to a place in our hearts that is central that you are first again in every aspect for your glory and by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.